You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is produced by Crawlspace Media. Hey everyone, I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Welcome back to True Crime Twins. Thanks for listening. How are you doing tonight, Melina? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be out of class. I'm sure that you all can imagine how stressful nursing school becomes. Well, it's going to be all worth it in the end. What's on your mind? Do you have any time to think about true crime in between your studies? Oh, yeah. I'm like never stop thinking about true crime. What's on your mind lately? Which case? So there was a missing woman in New Canaan, Connecticut last May. Her name is Jennifer Dulos, mother of five. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people in the true crime community have heard of Fotis Dulos, and he was the main suspect of the case. Very, very wealthy man, like owned a company that made luxury homes, but um, they were going through a very rocky divorce, and apparently he had a history of some violent behavior, and he was the main suspect, and he was recently charged with her murder, and something that's weird is that a lot of people accused of murder, they don't get bail at all, like none, but they they did give him like an insane number, like $6 million, but he's very wealthy and has a lot of connections, a lot of friends, so he made the $6 million bail. He also has connections in Greece. He's from Greece, so I'm sure they took away his passport, but this is a very resourceful guy. They put him on an ankle monitor, and but they still let him like go to church and go to work and other obligations. He still had a lot of privileges, but even those... He kept breaking the rules. Right. And instead of going to the hearing um, to answer to the fact that he had violated the conditions of his house arrest, where he, I think, stopped by Jennifer's memorial, took a few things and left. He doesn't show up. Police come to his place for a wellness check and find him unconscious in his car. Fotis Dulos attempted suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning, and he left a note proclaiming his innocence. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to most people that Fotis was responsible for this crime. You know, he was um, arrested and charged for this crime. But There's a mountain of evidence. You can read the arrest warrant yourself. Right. He disposed of multiple garbage bags filled with her bloody clothes. Um, there's evidence that he was there that morning um, when the nanny came over and found that 10 paper towel rolls were missing. She immediately suspects Fotis yeah. Dulos. And, you know, what a, a jerk all the way up to death. He can't even... Um, for his own children's sake, give them a place to visit their mother. He just keeps this nightmare going on for everyone. So to, so just to reiterate, her body has never been found. So it's kind of a um, rare thing for somebody to be charged with a murder. You have to have a lot of evidence that this person is dead in order to be charged with a murder without the body. But now he's gone. And the only other person that might know where her body is, is his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend, Michelle Traconis. She... Might try to save her ass now, but I don't really think they care anymore about what she says. I mean, she has no one to pin it on anymore. He's he's gone. gone. He can't answer to what he's done. So I feel like that was probably her best way out. And now that card is completely off the table. And I also don't think that we mentioned that he actually did successfully attempt suicide. We just said attempted, but he died two days later. Right. So he died. Fotis Dulos is dead. Yeah. So he, the charges will be dropped against him. And it's just, it makes me upset because it's, it's really, it's unfair. Like it's unfair to the kids. It's unfair to her family. It's, 
Yeah, like, it's horrible. It's horrible for everyone involved. And we should definitely move on to our case for the day. But Michelle Traconis, if you are listening to this <laughs> um, or if anybody knows her, tell us, tell authorities where Jennifer Dulos's body is for her children. Yep. I moving second on. that. Yes. <laughs> moving on. Today, we are talking about a case that I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of because it really hasn't been covered by any mainstream U.S. media. And I think the majority of our listeners are from the United States. So if you're not from the United States, uh, it's still possible that you haven't heard of it because it happened in Mexico and it still didn't get much media coverage there. We're talking about the unsolved disappearance of 24-year-old Israeli woman Dana Rishby. So she disappeared in Tulum, Mexico, which is in the Riviera Maya in 2007. It was May 30th, 2007. She was kind of on a backpacking trip. So she's from Israel. She comes from a pretty wealthy family. Um, She's a great girl. She loves to like make her own music and she has this really awesome song that you can actually still find on YouTube. Yes. Um, It's called Suter Z. Um, if you search for that on YouTube, it was uploaded in 2006. Um, it's all in Hebrew, so you can't really understand it, but you can just see how charismatic, intelligent, creative, and just wonderful this girl is. Um, she's from the city of Haifa, which is the third largest city in Israel, right on the coast. She had dual citizenship in Germany and Israel. She spoke Hebrew, German, and English fluently. She is the daughter of Dror and Dania Rishby and the youngest of four children. Big fam. Yes. Dana uh, is a beautiful young woman, 5'7", 120 pounds, extremely long brown hair, green eyes. Growing up, she was actually recruited to be a model because of her striking green eyes and doll-like looks. Her face was on grape labels in grocery stores. Like produce grapes? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Throughout the country of Israel in grocery stores, um, her face was on the stickers for grapes. Wow. Actually, up until the time of her disappearance, um, pictures of her as a child uh, were, were all over grocery stores in Israel. So she composed her own music and she also dubbed uh, Japanese cartoons at one point in her studies in her career. Um, she was looking at colleges to study computer animation. She was kind of taking a break from all of that, uh, enjoying her time backpacking on the Riviera Maya in Mexico. Yeah, and she kind of seemed like this really awesome, cool, independent woman. Like the description of the video that she posted it was actually a song for all the girls out there who are sick and tired of being nice to boys who just can't take a hint. Who can relate? Yeah. <laughs> She's just like pretty awesome. She's you just kind have of like, to spell it out. Yeah, and the video was really like funny. She was like kind of like hanging out with her friends and like swimming in the pool and like jumping on a bed. Like, yeah. She just seems like a really like fun person to be around. So Dana arrived in Tulum on March 30th, 2007. She was staying at the Mezzanine Hotel in Tulum with an American who was living in Mexico named Matthew Walshin. He was 38. He was familiar with Tulum and the community. She would actually uh, written in her diary that she was grateful to have met him. She called him Maddie. She was appreciative uh, to be in his company because he was familiar with the area Unlike her, Matthew had moved to Mexico on February 5th, but he had also spent a lot of time in that area in years past. Kind of like a drifter, right? From California? I would say more like a wealthy hippie than a drifter. Drifter (laughs) kind of conjures the image of 
like somebody with no money someone down on their luck uh he had a lot of luck like like festival to festival beach party to beach party i yeah i would say if um if he were a young man in this time he would be going festival to festival but at that time it was hippie beach to hippie beach okay um so he was the last person to see Dana, which is why we're talking about him so much. She mm-hmm. wrote about him in his diary. She mentioned that she was grateful to have met him, but she also said that she was uncertain of his intentions with her. She said that she would not consider having a romantic relationship or encounter with Maddie because he was unshowered and didn't smell good and didn't brush his hair. So he was a real hippie type. She wasn't into him, but that journal entry suggests that Maybe. she got an impression that he was into her. Right, because she was even considering it. Like, I don't know. I feel like that she probably wouldn't have liked him first under those circumstances. So maybe she was considering it because she could tell that he was flirty. He just couldn't take a hint. <laughs> right? Like that video. Yep. It's it, We all know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so she's last seen with Maddie at a beach party at the Mezzanine Hotel at 1.30 in the morning. This party was held every single week. According to Mexican newspaper La Reforma, Dana's brother Dan tracked down a photographer at that party who took pictures and the pictures from that night included Dana. So they were actually able to see from the brother's own investigation what she was last seen wearing, which was a green and black sweatshirt, black pants. She had a camera attached to her belt and she was watching Afro drummers perform on the beach. So... The family has all of her belongings that were left behind at the Mezzanine Hotel. Maddie put them, I think, with the front desk and they later picked them up. Neither the camera nor those clothes were included amongst her belongings. So nothing she had on her at that moment. No. So presumably she that's that's what she was wearing when she disappeared. Now, Matthew Walshin says that he last saw Dana the next morning going off to the ruins in Tulum with a group of Canadians now, you and I have both been to the ruins in Tulum. Yeah. In midday, mm-hmm. it is sweltering. There is no, no matter what time of year. Yeah, there is no breeze. It is just extremely hot and uncomfortable. Sweaty, sunburned city. He, so Dana's brother said she would be wearing a, a tank top. She'd be wearing shorts and she'd be wearing a hat. She would not wear a sweatshirt. No one would wear a sweatshirt and sweatpants. So he thinks it's really unlikely that that's what she would be wearing on that trip, which, you know, makes him doubt Matthew's story. But we'll we'll get more into that in a little bit. Let's keep in mind that since he did have, like, her backpack and stuff, he also had her passports and her journals and basically all of her earthly belongings. And the fact that all of this stuff was with him, I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I think that he didn't withhold any belongings in, in that bag. Right. But what do you think that he, he had them? Why do you think he had her belongings? Yeah. Wasn't she staying with him? Yeah, but why were they left with him? Because she didn't come back. Well, his story is that she went to the ruins and never came back. Okay. So, and then a few days later, he sent an email, I guess, to... I I think Dana had a shared email with her family. Mm -hmm. So, what Dana's mother says is that on April 7th... Now, mind you, Dana was last seen on March 30th. Matt claims to have seen her on the 31st so it's like a week later yeah he calls her on the 7th um maddie told her that dana had left her backpack with him the mother told matthew to leave her belongings at reception uh then she emailed dana urging her to get in touch and passed along the message that maddie had left the bag behind 
Dana then logged into Dana's email and saw that she hadn't checked it in two weeks. She also saw there was an email from an account called Flower Power, which was from Matthew Walshin. He was telling Dana that he had called her parents and that he was leaving her bags at the hotel. So they became immediately concerned that she hadn't been on her email for so long. Um, I don't think Maddie's first call concerned them too much. But once they saw her inactive email accounts, that really freaked them out and kind of pushed them into action. So did they go to Mexico? Yes. So they called local police who collected the backpack on April 24th with her belongings, her money, her passport, her diary. But they eventually traveled down there to search themselves. So Matt kind of split the area, right? Yes. He was like, he just vanished. He left within the month of April. He had a rented apartment in Tulum. But on April 23rd, he left suddenly on U.S. Airways Flight 316 to his home state of California. Authorities had just missed him. They were looking for him. And they found his apartment filled with cigarette butts. He left behind his driver's license and a newspaper from the day before, which showed that they really had just missed him. What's interesting is that for a while, Matthew Walsh was considered a, quote, unidentified man, only known as, quote, Maddie, because that's how Dana had identified him in journal entries and how he had identified himself to her parents. The parents said that he was not helpful. He was not cooperative. The FBI website has a photograph that looks like from that night of a man that appears to be Matthew Walshin, and it says um, that they're looking for information about that man. So this is a fun fact. I actually talked on the phone with Matthew Walshin. Yeah, that was crazy. So I cold called him. Um, I, th- I don't know. That was maybe a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I found his number on an app and just kind of called him out of the blue. He answered and I said, is this Matthew Walshin? And he said, yes. I told him that I was calling about Dana Rishby and he seemed surprised. He said that no one had contacted him about the case since 2007. And there's like blogs about him. Like, so like there's not a lot of coverage, but the coverage that we have found have been sort of like um, non-referenced blogs that like talk about him, you know, because he was the last person seen with her. So a lot of people think that he had something to do with it. So he, the fact that he seemed surprised that like somebody was reaching out to him about that kind of surprised me. That stunned me. Yeah. That he, and, you know, he said that he didn't have any comment. He didn't want to talk about it. But then we had a 15 minute conversation. So I don't know uh, if there are any other podcasters, uh, if there are any journalists listening to this, I'm sure that you may have experienced this as well. So he was 38. According to Dan Rishby, he told Dana that he was 32. He'd lived in various cities uh, throughout the United States, in California, Nevada, North Carolina. He lived in Hawaii and, of course, Mexico. He had an interesting background. His uh, father was Perry Walshin, who was a disgraced lawyer. He was convicted of of plotting to smuggle cocaine from Colombia. And in 1975, he was disbarred. And he even was somehow involved in the Manson trials. Yes, he represented Tex Watson in a lawsuit involving a car accident. But when he was in trial in Texas related to the Manson murders, Perry traveled to Texas to represent him in 1969. But he was promptly kicked out of the courtroom because Tex was like, I don't like I don't want them. I don't want this guy. I don't want him here. Yes. So it's just kind of a, a weird um, connection, a, a weird connection, but a, a wealthy, influential family. Nonetheless, even though his father had, um, uh, you know, such an embarrassing fall from grace there. Mm -hmm. So Matthew says that his hands are clean of this. He wouldn't hurt a fly. 
he said that I was wasting my time. You know, I was talking about maybe getting private investigators involved and sort of reinvigorating the case. And he said I would just absolutely get stonewalled that the Mexican authorities have no interest in pursuing this case because it's bad for tourism. And on that subject, he's right. Yeah. Tourism is their number one industry. Yes. So, you know, even though you and I have vacationed in that area, we didn't find out about this case because of that. We found out about this case from the FBI website. Right. So, (laughs) you know, Mexican authorities aren't trying to advertise that a young tourist went missing never to be found again because their cash cow is tourism. So Matthew Walshen is correct about that. But then he goes into like all kinds of other like he said something about like pedophile rings and like white slavery right and and that and that they have all these things going Drug on wars. and that all of and all of the Mexican authorities have have things to hide he doesn't and he actually claims that he was extremely helpful and cooperative with authorities and, and with the family and the family and the family would vehemently disagree with that um i haven't spoken to her parents but based on um you know their media interviews closer to the time of the disappearance they said under no uncertain circumstances that Matthew Walshen was extremely unhelpful. Dana's mom was quoted as saying, if you really wanted to help, if you were really innocent, why won't you help us? And when I quoted that to Matthew, he said, I did help them. I did help them. And in response, they slandered me. So I don't know what exactly he believes that he did to help them. I have no idea why Dana's parents would lie and say that he was uncooperative when he was. It just makes no sense to me. Yeah, if like returning her stuff is helpful, which happened like a while ago, he hasn't. I don't think he's done anything since. Like, I feel like he's evaded anybody that's tried to talk right, to him. Right, right. He called them and said, "I'm leaving her stuff at the hotel," or, or, or uh, Dana left her stuff behind, and the mom said, "Leave her stuff uh, at the front desk." That's sure. That's somewhat helpful, but to not be cooperative with them um, when they're trying to dig deeper, I I don't know. That just confused me. Uh, he denied having anything to do with it. He also denied having a criminal record and said that any news sources that reported that were unreliable and that it's uh i think he said it was libel so i actually contacted the journalist that wrote this very informative in-depth multi-part series on the rishby disappearance she was super helpful sylvia and she told me that she triple checked everything she was extremely thorough and matthew did have a criminal record dating back several years all of the offenses were um, sexual in nature. So according to Sylvia's article in La Reforma, with assistance of Interpol, the Mexican police entered into the, into the record filed number DGAP1153107 that Matthew Ryan Walshen had an extensive criminal history in the United States. The Sheriff's Office of Santa Cruz County and Lakeport County records state that in 1989, he was charged with rape, resisting and obstructing a police officer and contempt of court. In 1990, he was charged for rape and sexual assault, sentenced to five years of probation and 180 days in jail. In 1993, he was charged with sexual assault again in Santa Cruz and later with sexual assault in San Francisco. So this is all according to the um, article that Chloe found from La Reforma, but we want to do a Freedom of Information Act request and really learn more about this. Yeah, I would be interested to get more details of the case. I think that this journalist was extremely thorough in her research. She's now a notable author Mm -hmm. in Mexico City. So I... as long as we can make sure we confirm it, you know, not just... You know what I mean? No, I'm not saying that she's... Yeah, yeah. I agree that it's best to not just 
appeal to authority and take someone's word for it i'd like to see it before my eyes but real proof like yeah, court, so, court evidence yes so matthew also denies the account of someone that the mexican media referred to as el hungaro now he is how do you say that in this in the right accent el hungaro el hungaro our accents are good yes yeah <laughs> Um, so he's a Hungarian man. Um, according to a Hungarian newspaper, Matthew Walshin purchased ecstasy from him. His name is Zolt Feher. He purchased the ecstasy at around one o'clock in the morning. He had asked for a ride to Playa Esperanza, where Feher rep- rented a cabin and he was staying with his Argentinian wife and toddler. He remembered Matthew and a girl with very long hair, presumably Dana. He said at 3 a.m., Matthew woke him up and asked to borrow a blanket. From there, he knew nothing more. A week later, Matthew had told him that he was in possession of a backpack of a girl who had, quote, gone on a trip. The the blanket was never found for the purposes of forensic collection. Now, you know, ecstasy has the effects of making someone... It's it's called the love drug. So Mm -hmm. everything is sort of clouded with kind of a sexual romantic energy. So I don't think it would be far-fetched for someone that has a history of sexual crimes to um, be like to provoked or something. To, yeah, to be to more be, likely to, act. to be emboldened, correct, um, under the influence of ecstasy and attack a girl that you know it's established in her diary that he was potentially interested in. She was a beautiful girl, so um, that kind of opens up that scenario. He said it's all lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hungarian guy, it's all bull. So. Uh, you know, and you know the whole having a blanket in general—that's not found as significant to me because what can you do with a blanket? Wrap a body, correct? You know, and he and anyone could say, oh, he was just cold in the middle of the night, maybe. But it, it's just an interesting thing. But it's really his word against his. So he was arrested in connection with the disappearance, right? But obviously, no charges. I don't know exactly what came of that but he was arrested mexican authorities as matthew said are not really looking into this case with a lot of um integrity with a lot of earnest uh yeah with a lot of earnest integrity (laughs) i would say they basically came up with some story that dana ended up in belize and that uh witnesses in a hotel saw her and a man there you know she's not in mexico anymore case closed family says no way that is completely false she would not just disappear. I mean, first of all, how did she get there without her passport and her money and all her crap? Yeah, and she had, like, mad dreams. Like, I'm pretty sure she, like, finished her term with the Israeli army and she was looking at schools in America for her dream job, right. which was animation. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll just leave all my shit and just go to Belize without a passport. It's completely absurd. Yeah. She had she had roots. She had potential. She had plans. Yeah. It's just, it's absolutely absurd. They didn't want to take responsibility for the case. The case is now under the custody of the FBI. Yeah, and that's really the only place where you can find like her poster or anything like that. So in the first week of May, when the Rishbees were in Mexico, Dan, her brother, found an abandoned vehicle that apparently belonged to Matthew Walshin. It was a gray Toyota pickup truck with plate number XPV605 from Oregon. Police got into the car. They said they found traces of blood. The forensic scientist hired by Mexican authorities determined it was blood. But after subsequent tests, they determined it was not human blood. Hmm. I brought this up to Matthew. He said that was all crap. That never happened. They never found his abandoned car in Mexico. 
So this was reported by a blog and it was also reported by La Reforma. So that's another kind of unexplained suspicious thing. I mean, I just, just to say that everything that's written about him is made up, it's just not a very compelling argument. I'd like to talk to him again Mm -hmm. and hear more from his side because to me, I, I just think there has to be more to it than it's all made up. That someone that would, I'm not hiding anything. They're hiding everything. Right. The wall why? Silence. Don't even try. That's the thing that got me. It's like, wait, you're wasting your time. Don't even go there. It's like. Right. He didn't. He just wanted me to just give up before I even started. He wanted to demoralize me and say that there was no way this case was ever going to get solved. Now, I think. She'll never be found. After all this time, I think hope is slim. I don't want to be unrealistic, but I don't think. I think that it's worth covering. I think it's worth thinking more about. And if um, and if private investigators want to look into it, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it is a waste of their time. Yeah, because worst case scenario is that we're just back where we are right now. Right. And he says, oh, well, I already cooperated with the police. I told them everything I know. But then he rips the police apart and says that they're corrupt. So what the hell are you getting at? Yeah, it's it's sad because like when you actually do have the opportunity to talk to somebody like him. And usually don't get this opportunity. Sometimes you just don't ask every single question that is in your head because it's it's overwhelming. You know, like yep. I, you know, you're going to talk to him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just the, the whole situation is just. I, I feel so bad for her family, and you know, I kind of tried to see if he had any measure of empathy towards the Rishbees, and I said, you know, I feel really bad for him, and he agreed. He acknowledged that what they were going through was really sad, but he he, I don't know. It's just really strange that he just denies what everyone says. So lucky for him, you know, guilty or not, uh, the prosecutor of Quintana Roo in 2007, Bello Melchor Rodriguez, denied that Dana Rishby um, had been killed in Mexico. He repeated and emphasized that Dana, who was without passport and without money, traveled to Belize where she was seen by several people. Um, Despite the objections of the family, they moved on from the case I think that the more likely scenario than starting a new life with nothing, none of her stuff, is that an unrequited interest escalated. And now this person is just not a very good liar, but has been very lucky yeah. in not facing any consequences. Really lucky. And he doesn't see himself that way, I don't think. But I think the fact that he's been so inconsistent. And all of the kind of suspicious pieces that come together, the confluence of the circumstances, tells us a different story. Yeah. And the thing is, is that she has vanished. No sign of her at all. So to me, the likely conclusion is that something bad happened to her and that she's no longer with us. And I want to say that it was most likely this man that we're talking about because he was the last one known to seen with her and to say that he saw her or was with her he had all of her earthly belongings but i guess like something else could have happened to her too right like somebody else could have like kidnapped her anything's possible someone and i think many people would interpret the reluctance of mexican authorities to investigate someone could think it was something involving a police conspiracy maybe it was someone that was connected to the police or like the cartel that controls the police right but if something happened to Dana that night that didn't involve Matthew, why would he say that he saw her that next morning and she went off with the Canadians to the ruins? When there's no like evidence that she was who, around that morning. Who are these people? Why hasn't anyone come forward and said, yeah, I was with her that morning? Nobody saw her at the ruins. Like, I know the ruins are big, but like... She was a very... Recog- I mean, 
she was a beautiful young American woman. So that stands American, out. Israeli. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Israeli woman. That's, I mean, she's, she she's, stands oh, out. She's American, has, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's why I said that. Um, <laughs> yeah. She has, you know, long waist length, brown hair. I think that she slender. I think tall. that she, yeah, she's beautiful. She's a head turner. I think that she's memorable. I think they would have remembered her. She didn't bring with her the proper attire that she would have worn, according to her family, to go to the ruins, which implies something happened that night. So why did he say he saw her the next day? That's that. Well, that is just a very simple piece that does not make sense. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that this hotel still exists, but I'm like nearly certain that they didn't have surveillance at the time. I'm sure they don't even have it now. Yeah, CCTV is a really like American and UK thing. Yeah, totally. I wish that they I wish that like CCTV has always been a thing because like I, I posted on our Instagram a little while back about Bianca LeBron and about how if there was CCTV that there wouldn't even be any, you know, doubt at all. Like the case would be solved. This this case would be too. Exactly. A, a, a lot of them would be there wouldn't be uh, I think. I think uh, a large percentage of the cold cases uh, would be solved. And it's like, sure, maybe it's like a little bit of an invasion of privacy, but we're invading the privacy of maybe somebody that needs to be stopped or like, yeah. you know, punished yeah. or to find somebody to help a family. I can see both sides. I really do. Yeah. I can see both sides. But it, it's it's hard to think about the number of cases that could potentially have closure. If, it's like she she could have just been in the hotel. Like they literally could have had like video of her leaving the hotel that morning and his story would be confirmed. And and you think about a lot of cases that were solved um, in recent years thanks to CCTV. It's just it's it's hard to argue against increased use of CCTV in public places, right? Um, you know where privacy is not being violated because it's a public space. That's how they got photos, right? Exactly. Discarding the evidence on the busy Hartford, Connecticut street because of all of the cameras. They caught him like so many different times. That's how they got photos Dulos. Um I th- that's how they caught um the serial killer Jesse Matthew in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. He had killed several women, um attempted to kill a woman in um Fairfax, Virginia, killed Morgan Harrington in Charlottesville and then killed Hannah Graham in Charlottesville. And he was finally stopped because of the CCTV at the downtown mall they literally followed him like they knew his exact path, path and trail yes. it was crazy no, so yeah the, the timeline of that case is unbelievable so I, that's for another day yeah we got a little off topic but um it, it's no one saw dana the next day and she didn't have the proper attire and it's i don't buy that she ran away at all that's not i'm not even going to entertain that theory i think the mexican authorities are saying ridiculous things and unfortunately um sorry matthew if you're listening to this i think you're saying ridiculous things too i'm it it, it doesn't make sense the rishbis have no reason to lie they're looking for their daughter they're not having a collective delusion. Mm-hmm. I think what's most likely is that you were not cooperative. Your stories are inconsistent. They don't match up with what's been left behind. And I feel so terribly for this family. Do you? Yeah. I wonder. It's He could say that he does, but I don't. I don't think that he does. If, if he he actu- feels like a he feels like the victim. He feels like he the feels victim. Like upset. No. <laughs> yeah. If, if he felt sorry for that family, they would have answers because. Every indication shows that he knows what happens. He, he knows what happened to Dana. It's like in the really rare scenario that this is literally just character assassination and his and it is libel and slander. Like he's saying, I just think that's very unlikely. I feel like that there's a lot of witness statements. There's law reforma um, citing police reports and criminal record. Uh, Matthew or anyone else who knows what happened to Dana, if you're listening to this, if you know what happened to Dana, 
please relieve her family of this terrible burden and contact your local FBI office. And you can submit a tip anonymously online or via phone. 